Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on One for the Road is a creator, podcast host and executive producer of Behind the Smile, a recovery podcast designed to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. And I'm also a guest on her podcast coming up in a few days. She gave up alcohol in 2020 and has gone on to do some amazing things in the sober community. So please welcome the wonderful Ashley Butters. Welcome, Ash, to my podcast, One for the Road. Uh, I'm really, truly uh, grateful for you joining me today because I've dragged you away from your family Christmas dinner in Australia, haven't I? <laughs> That's right, Dave. Thank you so much for having me be here. It was actually not a hard decision when we spoke yesterday and you said, you know, I've got this opening for you to come on the show. I thought I can cut the Christmas dinner short. That uh, family will understand. Yeah. We've done plenty of them before. Well, do you know what? Uh, I know this episode is going to be aired out right at the beginning of dry January. And not only is your story really, really powerful, you know, I listened to it and it blew me away how how amazing you are and strong you are. But we're going to round it off at the end with some useful tips and resources to help people that are at the beginning of their journey of dry January. And it's important for us both to stay in the moment when we first stopped drinking, because it's hard, isn't it? We can feel alone, scared, not know how we're going to get to the end of the day, even uh, by not having a drink. So Mm. I I think this is an important episode. So Ash, I know your story is very, very powerful. Would you like to tell the listeners from the beginning how it all started? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly can. So look, when I look back at my story and how it all began, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father is an alcoholic and my mother is the daughter of an alcoholic. She grew up in a very violent environment and my dad was one of 10 children. So in both of their families of origin, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of carnage. And so then when my parents met There was from the outset a lot of drinking within their relationship and, you know, they got married. They had my brother and I, I have an older brother, 
But from my earliest memories, there was always a lot of alcohol in the home. And I'll preface by saying there wasn't much physical violence, but what I found as a result of having alcoholics in the home was that there was a lot of uncertainty and I never really felt safe and I never really knew what I was going to get from my parents on any given day. So I didn't know whether they would be in a good mood, in a bad mood, whether they'd even come home some of the time. And so I developed from quite a young age this sense of unease, uh, which later developed and became bigger and stronger. Now, I mentioned I've got an older brother and he is three years and nine months older than me. And what I found was growing up, I felt like I was always in his shadow. So from a very, very young age, I would have different behaviors and different ways of trying to gain the attention of my parents because I always felt like the limelight was on my brother. He was a very gifted sportsman and we spent a lot of time on the weekends at his sporting games, whether that was he was playing uh, football, AFL we have here in Melbourne, Australia, or he would be playing cricket in the summer season. So there was never really an off time. It was sport 24-7 in our household And I can't catch a ball to save my life. So I wasn't able to join in with my brother around that. And so what I ended up doing was falling into musical theatre and performing as a way of having something that I could identify with and that I could be good at in the hopes that I'd be able to gain some of that attention back from my parents. But what ended up happening there was I became very, very good at playing characters and playing different roles. And I started from a very young age to shape shift and people please. And that was something again that just got stronger and developed more and more as I went into my teenage years and then into adulthood. And so I was growing up and I had this sense of unease. There was this uncertainty within the family home and I never felt good enough because I always felt like I couldn't live up to all of the accolades and the achievements that my brother was gaining throughout the years. And yeah, I just, I didn't really know who I was. I never really had a strong sense of self. And then on top of all of that, I was often labeled an attention seeker or a princess in inverted commas. And whilst they were always just passing comments, they stuck you know, and I started to believe that. And I actually felt a great deal of shame around having those titles. So I carried on for a few years. And then at the age of 12 is when I discovered alcohol. And I remember the very first night that I drunk and got drunk for the first time. And it was actually around this time of year, it was Christmas time. And my family had been invited to a Christmas party in Melbourne that was where a lot of A-list celebrities were going. By this stage, I should also mention my dad had started working at one of the AFL football clubs. And for any of your listeners who don't know much about Aussie rules football, if you live in Melbourne, Australia, it's basically a religion. So he was involved in one of the football clubs quite heavily in in a senior role there. And so we were invited along to this party and I ended up drinking alcohol for the first time, but I didn't just try it. I had worked out that the wait staff were serving free cocktails at the front of this big mansion. And so my friend and I would go through the front, get the drinks, and then run through the back of the house and then circle back around and go again and again and again. Now, 
after a few rounds of this, my friend stopped because, you know, she was feeling the sense of being intoxicated and she was able to stop. Whereas I just got a taste for it and I wanted more and more and more. And I didn't stop until my head was in a toilet. And I remember my mum coming and grabbing me and she was furious, like just so, so angry. Anyway, I was put into a bedroom, told to sleep it off. And then later when my mum and dad were ready to leave the party, we all jumped in a taxi and I went and we went home. Now, the interesting thing about that evening was that my parents, I think, could have gone one of two ways in that taxi ride on the way home. There could have been a really healthy conversation around my behaviour, what the effects of my behaviour were, what the consequences of that behaviour would be, so on and so forth. Or there was the disciplinary, harsh reprimand, and that's what I got. And so, and look, I don't at all blame my parents for that because that's how they were raised. Uh, but I think from that very first time, you know, and I ended up getting grounded for, I think, something like six months, and that ended up becoming the pattern of my teenage years. And so, I started to become quite angsty quite rebellious, but there was this real juxtaposition between the person I was outside of school socially and the person I was at school because I still had this perfectionistic drive and tendency where I wanted to please my teachers, I still wanted to please my parents, so I was very academic, I was very studious, I ended up being a prefect, music captain, drama captain, you know, I I always had to succeed in a hope of trying to get this recognition that never seemed to be enough. And so socially, at the same time that I was getting really great grades and I was doing very well at school, I was starting to party more and more and more. And there was this weird thing inside me that I now understand was, I believe, alcoholism, where I had to do everything first. So I had to be, you know, the first one to drink, the first one to try drugs, the first one to kiss boys. And the older I got, the more extreme that behavior became. And so I mentioned I was 12 when I tried alcohol for the first time. And then I was 14 when I tried class A drugs for the first time, which looking back now, you know, it's just, I can't believe how young I was, but I remember at the time feeling like an adult. You know, I never really felt like I was able to experience those teenage years as a real teenager. And I think that was because around that time, my parents just weren't really around. My The work that my dad was doing within the AFL meant that he and my mum were out most nights. And so, I was really parenting myself for a lot of that. Anyhow, I remember that experience of trying these drugs for the first time almost more than I do trying alcohol for the first time. I felt this sense of almost being lit up. And I know that inner critic that lived inside my head for as long as I can remember, that sense of not being enough, this inherent unworthiness that that felt like it lived inside my mind, it all disappeared in an instant. And for the rest of that night, I was able to be free. And so I ended up spending the rest of that night Funnily enough, dancing on a broken foot, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but I um, I got home and I just thought to myself, that was great. Let's do that again. Yeah. And so then, yeah, drinking and drugs were, were part of my life pretty much from then on out. 
But again, because I had this drive to do well at school, I was able to keep it very much to the weekends. And the other interesting thing I'll point out is that whilst I can look back at, you know, how young I was, and that can feel quite shocking thinking back now, at the time, it didn't seem strange at all because Mm. the people that I was associating with were doing the same thing. So, there was never really any moment where I stopped to think, oh, maybe this is I knew it was wrong, but I didn't think it was that bad. And again, I was able to use that mentality for the years that preceded. And so, you know, I finished school. I did quite well. I got in to do the degree that I wanted to do, but my relationship with my parents was becoming more and more fractured. And I ended up moving out of home when I was 17. My parents were also separating at this time and it wasn't a great divorce. Um, they actually separated the first time when I was 16 and then they got back together, which wasn't a great idea. Uh, and as you, as you would know, having the second separation and then subsequent divorce, it definitely didn't go well. And so, you know, as a young adult or a teenager, I saw a lot of things that I shouldn't have seen. Uh, and my way of dealing with that was just to obliterate myself on the mm. weekends. And so that behavior continued on for, for a number of years. You know, I had a, I had a tendency to find boys or men that were also heavy into drinking and drug using. And so I would live with those guys. And again, I wouldn't have to look at my behavior because we would just enable one another to drink and to use. And then when I was 18, I actually ended up stealing drugs from a drug dealer. And I got myself into a real spot of bother where I owed a considerable amount of money and I had no way to pay it. So I actually had to, I I went to a pawn shop and I pawned my saxophone and I pawned my guitar and I still wasn't even close to coming up with the money. So at that time, I had to go to my dad for help. Now, I mentioned my dad is in recovery and he has been now for over 12 years. But when this was happening, he was still very much an active alcoholic and nobody in my family knew anything about recovery. So the solution to the the problem that my parents were facing, what do we do with Ashley, was to send me up to a health farm in Queensland. Now, if you understand the disease of alcoholism, you'll understand that it's all good and well to detox and to dry out. But if you don't understand what's really going on within your mind, if you don't start doing the deep work to really shift what's going on, then it's very likely that you'll pick up a drink again. And that's exactly what happened. I actually was drinking and using the night I got home after being away for, I believe it was around seven days. So that was my first sort of experience of stopping. But, you know, it was so short lived that I came home and I continued on very much. So, well, at what age was you there, Ashley? Like, I was 18. 18. So, already listening to this story, you've lived a life of, you know, drinking drugs. Did you feel like because of um, your upbringing, you, you grew up before your time? It sounded like. You know, a bit like my story, it, I relate to so much of it, of the feeling mm-hmm. rejected. And mine's slightly different, but it was a feeling of not feeling loved and whatever. And I kind of went into my own 
world with it all. And um, when I started drinking, I, it was a feeling of acceptance. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sense of, you know, the noise in my head, just it, everything went quiet and it was yeah. peaceful. And, yeah. you know, like I said, there was a sense of freedom that I wasn't able to find when I was sober. Yeah. It just and you're wasn't so right reach. as well, what you say about going to these places to help you to stop alcohol, you know, unless you get to what's underneath it all, nine times out of 10, you're going to re-offend in that area, aren't you? Absolutely. Look, it's been my experience that nobody that's completely content with their life drinks alcohol the way I did. Yeah. Uh, And it was to excess, wasn't it? It was like me. It's like, well, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Oh, absolutely. From the very first time, as I shared, when I took that first drink, I've never had an off switch. Yeah. So, you know, that tendency to go hard has always been in me. But I then think coupled with the life experiences that I was having from a very young age and seeing mm. things that I shouldn't have seen, yeah, it was a, I, it became a coping mechanism, which I think it becomes for so, so many people. Yeah, and, and pretty much straight away as well. And, and you were born on Christmas Day as well. So how did that That's affect right. Everything? Yeah, and look, it's really interesting. I try to explain this to some people. Because it may not seem like much of a big deal. Everybody always laughs and says to me, oh, that must be a bit shit. But Mm. it actually runs a lot deeper than that. And because I had a sense of, I truly believe that from the minute that I was born, because the fact was I actually disrupted Christmas Day. So my brother was three and a bit years old. We were sitting, well, my parents were sitting down for him to unwrap his presents and my mum went into labour. So I feel. There's a part of my inner child that feels responsible for essentially ruining Christmas for my family. And so for the years that came after that, you know, my parents always have done their best to try and make Christmas feel like my birthday as well. But I have this weird experience where I feel like I'm taking something away from them. And so I'm not able to fully enjoy it either. And then when I do, you know, I've tried, I've tried all sorts of different ways to approach Christmas. I've tried to ask for my needs to be met and then sometimes I feel like I'm asking for too much and then sometimes I just don't say anything and then I feel disappointed. But that's the beauty of recovery is I'm starting to learn, you know, how to manage my expectations, how to set boundaries, how to ask for my needs to be met. And if I start to get pushback, then I just say, okay, I'm I'm done. Thank you. Um, so all of these things that I was never able to do when I was still drinking and I was still in active addiction, it's been amazing. You know, um, last year was actually the first Christmas ever that I haven't cried. (laughs) And this year I've decided to go to Bali, which is, you know, that's something I never would have done before because I always would have felt obliged to stay home to be in Melbourne with my family but that again that was just a rule that I was applying to myself my parents never told me that but all of these expectations and all of this undercurrent of people pleasing that is still a part of me you know I don't I don't get sober and then all of my character defects fall away in one day you know it's a daily process of trying to work on these things yeah it's a lot of work and uh you know that can go on for the rest of our lives but it's also fascinating to be be able to do that with clarity and a clear mind and for someone so young I love your uh, mindset how you think about things and what's beneath it I can tell in this conversation alone how you look at 
your past life and whatever. And it, it's fascinating to see. So when you come out of this place, mm. what happened then? So I was 18 then. And look, the next few years were very much the same sort of thing. I did end up going to university and getting my degree. And I actually ended up being in a relationship with a guy that wasn't a big drinker and didn't really do drugs. And we were together for about four years and he was a really good influence on me. But a really interesting thing happens to alcoholics like me when we have a period of time where we're not in that sort of furious active addiction. We can, we can pair it back for a little bit of time, but then all of a sudden we start to get restless, irritable and discontent. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I only know this through doing a lot of therapy and a lot of. <laughs> work and having hindsight that I now see what happened is I just got to a point where I was bored and it wasn't his fault. It was completely me, but I just blew that relationship up. Not only did I blow the relationship up, I blew up my entire world. And so because at that time I didn't have the ability to look at the part I'd played, I decided to run. I did a geographical and I ended up moving to Sydney. So it's an hour's flight from Melbourne, um, but it was enough. It was far away enough that I didn't have to deal with the chaos and the carnage that I'd left in my hometown. So I moved up to Sydney and that's really where my drinking and using actually really took off because all of a sudden I was able to behave and do exactly what I wanted to do. And I didn't have any immediate family or close friends being able to watch over me, look over my shoulder or know what I was doing. I was able to hide and, you know, already I'd had all these years of wearing different masks. So it was the perfect place to go for my addiction. That is Uh, within a year of being there, I ended up meeting the man that I would later marry. And, you know, we just met a random night down in Bondi Beach and we hit it off and we bonded over trauma. Uh, he had lost his dad a couple of years earlier. And I remember the first night we ended up getting together. We know it was a lot of drinking and drugs and, you know, we just sat there and spoke to each other for hours and hours and hours. And we, yeah, we formed a bond. We later fell in love and, For a time, we were really, really happy. We were ticking all of life's boxes, you know. We bought a house together. We invested in a business together. He then proposed. And, you know, it seemed like everything was, even though I was was drinking probably, by this stage, it was probably maybe four times a week. And I would say 90% of the time I was drinking, cocaine would also be involved. But I was still showing up for work. I was still tending to my responsibilities, and everything on the outside looked exactly as it should. So nobody was really all that worried and there were no sort of concerns being raised, but I knew that I wasn't okay. So this continued on and there was an incident that occurred that I'll share with you now. And the reason this is, it was highly traumatic, but it was also the sliding doors moment where I became a daily drinker. And so what happened was Max, which is the man that I married, Max and I were down in Melbourne at a wedding and his brother who lived with us in Sydney, he hadn't showed up for work that morning, that Saturday morning. And we Max got a phone call and we told 
the friend just to go to our apartment in Bondi and just to jump over the balcony and just to check if if Dan was okay. And unfortunately, when the friend arrived at the apartment, he found Dan dead and Danny had taken his own life. And the friend called us back and I picked up the phone. And what happened in that moment, you the only way I can describe it is it is exactly like in the movies where time stands still. And it felt like everything was moving in slow motion. And as I handed the phone over to my fiance at the time, and I saw him drop to his knees, there was this wash over me where I knew that my life was never going to be the same. I already knew that both Max and I didn't handle trauma in a functional, healthy manner. I knew that because we'd both shown each other that along the years that we'd been together. And knowing just how close Dan and Max were, I didn't know how my fiancé was going to get through this. The other part of the story is that two weeks later, we were due to get married. And so the next two weeks were just a complete blur. You know, we had seven days that we flew back to Sydney. We had seven days to plan a funeral. And then seven days after that, we stood in front of 180 of our closest family and friends, most of which were at the funeral seven days prior. And we stood at the altar and we said our vows. And to this day, I still don't know how we got through that moment, you know, with, with the best man not being there. Um, It was a really, really strange day. Um, There was a lot of love in the room and I don't regret going through with it. But, yeah, to say it was a strange experience um, would be an understatement. So, you know, things started to happen like the night before my wedding, I, I drank and I used cocaine and I never thought I'd do that. By that point, I just couldn't stop. And so... Sadly, the next two years of my marriage as a newlywed, rather than us growing together, we grew apart. Max is a recovering drug addict. He's just recently celebrated 12 months clean, uh, which is amazing. Um, But at the time, he fell into his vice as a way to cope, and I fell into mine. So I was drinking daily. He was smoking weed daily. And unfortunately, our marriage fell apart as a result of that. And so at the start of 2020, we had been to the States. We were actually skiing in Jackson, Wyoming, and we came back and our marriage was literally on the last strand and Max decided he wanted to go to India to do a silent retreat to try and find himself and figure out a way to save the marriage. And it was really, really interesting, Dave, because in my mind, I thought, ah, perfect. When you leave, I'll stop drinking the way I have been drinking because I won't be sad and lonely anymore because you won't be using around me every day. So I'm constantly pointing the finger and blaming him for the way I was drinking. And I thought, you're going to leave. And all of a sudden, I'll show you, I will, I'll go back to managing my consumption and everything will be fine. Well, the exact opposite happened. All of a sudden, I didn't even have him on my back anymore. And it was just like there was nothing left stopping me. And this was the very, it became the very last time that I drank was 
it was February and it was Valentine's Day. And I remember I had been down in Melbourne for work because my head office was actually down in Melbourne. So I was flying back and forth a lot. And I had, it was a Friday night and I decided not to go to the work drinks because I knew that I couldn't trust how much I was drinking at that point. So I declined an invitation to go for work drinks. And I actually went back. I was staying with my mum and I went home back to mum's house and I opened a bottle of wine and about three quarters of the way through the bottle, I got a text from a friend and he said that he was in Richmond. And so I said to my mum, hey, mum, I'm just going to go meet my friend. I'll be back in an hour. The next thing she knows, I'm walking through the door. It's eight o'clock the following morning. I haven't slept. I've lied to her about where I've been. And I remember vividly, it's etched in my mind, the look on her face when I walked through those doors. And that was my rock bottom moment, Dave. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that I had drunk more or used more than any other time before. It wasn't that. It was the look of pain and disappointment on her face. And I thought to myself, I can't keep doing this. You know, my own self-worth and self-esteem was so shattered that I could have continued drinking and using for another three decades that way because I didn't have enough self-worth to want to stop for me. But by gosh, I had enough care and love for my mother to know that I couldn't keep doing that to her. And that was it. I fell to my knees, tears streaming down my face, and I said, I need help, you know. And so the other thing I mentioned earlier is my dad's, you know, been in recovery for 12 years now. So whilst that past decade where I was crashing and bashing through Sydney, my dad had actually gotten sober at that time. And he had taken me to a couple of AA meetings throughout those years, you know, I'd get into enough pain maybe once or twice a year where I'd be ready to, I said, okay, I've had enough. Can you help me? And he'd take me to a meeting and I would just sit there and I must have had cotton wool in my ears because I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear the message. I didn't know what the program was and I would leave and I would drink again. And going back to the moment, I fell to my knees. My mum called my dad who just lives around the corner and then the three of us were there. I remember we all sat out the back chain smoking, <laughs> tears streaming down my face, and we called a rehab up in Sydney, and I was in there within seven days. And that was really where the beginning of this journey all started for me. It was the 24th of February, 2020. So I'm coming up to three oh, years, amazing. God willing. <laughs> amazing. And, and do you know what? It's important to say that when when you – mentioned that you were in the AA and it's like you didn't hear it you probably didn't want to hear it then you know you're exactly right I truly believe that we need to reach a point of complete desperation to be willing to do what's required to get sober because it is certainly not the easier softer way a life of sobriety is not an easy decision but it is the best decision I have ever made in my life. And I wouldn't swap my sobriety for anything else in the world. No. And, uh, you know, I quite often say you never, ever hear anyone regret being sober. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating what you said about your mum's look, her expression and Mm. the serendipity of that, you know, for all you've been through and almost like, the lies you told yourself as well, 
about Max mm-hmm. going away to India, this would be the perfect opportunity. I've been there so many times where I thought, you know what, this will allow me the ideal chance to do it. And I just have done the opposite. I've just gone on even more of a bender, which is almost like self-sabotage. And it goes to show, just don't give up. Keep planting that seed in your head and keep educating. If you're sober curious, still follow the sober accounts and and feed that information into your brain because it does stick, even if it's subliminal. Absolutely right. You know, I, I would have had countless conversations with my dad over the years and, he, you know, he never forced me. That was one big thing. He never forced me to get sober. He never chastised me or made me feel like a failure. He knew that when the time was right, that he would be there to welcome me with open, loving arms, but he certainly wasn't going to drag me there kicking and screaming. You know, it would, it just simply wouldn't have worked. No. And I don't, I know that can be really difficult for people who have loved ones who are in active addiction. And they, you know, I'll often be asked, what can we do? And sometimes the answer is you you need to wait. You need to wait for this person to be ready. Mm. And until they are, you know, they need to go through. That's why it's so important to let people experience their rock bottom. Yeah, and not to judge as well, as best as they can. I know it's hard because it affects Mm -hmm. people's lives, partners, loved ones or whatever, but Mm. telling them to do something quite often has a negative effect because – that did for me. Like if I was told you've got to give up drinking or that's it, I mm. doubt pretty much if that would work. So it it came to me to decide I'd had enough. So what was your experience like in rehab? I had the most incredible experience. I absolutely loved my time in rehab and I often joke that if I could go back there every year just for a one-week top-up, I would. Um yeah. <laughs> I went to a rehab up in Sydney. It was a 12-step rehab, which meant that by day we were in group therapy sessions uh, and we had a whole team looking after us. So there were psychologists, psychiatrists, group therapists, and we did a lot of powerful work there. And then of an evening, you would be taken by bus to a 12-step recovery meeting, whether that was AA, NA, GA, whatever was relevant for you. But the work that I did in terms of really understanding the trauma, learning how to reparent myself, there was an experience I had in my third week there where I was put into a program called Changes. And this is a program that applies for people who they feel have had enough significant childhood trauma that they need to go and do deep somatic therapy work, which is working with the body to heal the trauma. And so I was put into this program and it seriously changed my life. It's hard to quantify just how much that experience shifted everything that I thought I'd ever known. I had to relearn everything. You know, there was a process of first understanding because I'll tell you a quick story. Part of the process in group therapy was to do what's called a timeline. So from zero to 17, you would mark down every significant event that had happened to you. And then in your second week, you get up and you share that to your group. Now, when I got up to share my timeline, unbeknownst to me, I smiled the entire way through. And there was some really horrific stuff in there. You know, um, I had a really bad eating disorder when I was a teenager. 
I had some really unpleasant relationships. I had, oh my gosh, there was a lot of stuff around. There'd been a time that a boy had come to our school with a knife. There had been all sorts of different things that, you know, I had just assumed were just part of growing up and part Mm. of life because I didn't know any better. And so I smiled sharing all of this information and the look on my therapist's face at the end of it and and of my peers who were in the room, you know, they all had tears streaming down their faces. And all of a sudden I was I was allowed to acknowledge what had really happened. And all of a sudden I understood why I needed drinking, drugs, relationships, other things to fill what I call the God-shaped hole in my soul. And that was just priceless. And it's so interesting what you're saying. We're going to talk about it later, your podcast, Behind the Smile, because it's it's so relevant that quite often we push away our traumas by smiling, laughing, mm. you know, the huge denial of what's actually happened in our past. And we just like cover it over with stuff like that. And so after that, that seems absolutely amazing. How did you find the first few weeks of sobriety? So, look, it was a really interesting time to get sober. When I went into rehab, the world was very, very normal. Everything was ticking along as it should. Two weeks in, we started hearing word from the outside that toilet paper was going missing in supermarkets and all of these strange things were happening because we were only allowed to make a five-minute phone call a day. So we were getting dribs and drabs of information. We had no phones, no internet access, no nothing. And of course, what I'm talking about here is it was the start of the COVID pandemic. And so by the time I left rehab, it was only a couple of weeks later, we were in complete lockdown. And so all of a sudden I was introduced to Zoom and I was able to connect to, so I can, as I mentioned, it was a 12 step rehab. I continued doing those 12 step meetings as a way of forming connection, but it was really, really difficult. You know, I went back into an, an environment where I was living with an active user and, you know, his using was one of my biggest triggers. I often don't know how I got through those first few months other than I didn't see an option to go back. I was so broken when I went into that rehab that going back for me just wasn't, and that's not to say that it didn't cross my mind every single day, multiple times a day, but I remembered that look on my mum's face and it was enough. It was enough for me to just get my head on the pillow that night. And I would very much keep it into in that 24-hour block, you know, one day at a time, just get your head on a pillow tonight. I would stay connected to people. You know, I was spending a lot of time speaking to my dad, who obviously has experience in recovery. I started following different sober accounts on Instagram, and that really helped me to feel part of. You know, I also consider that be- the fact that the pandemic and the lockdown had happened was a real blessing for me because all of a sudden temptation was removed. So as long as I didn't have alcohol in the house, which wasn't an issue because my partner preferred to smoke weed anyway, it was as long as there wasn't alcohol in the house, then 
I didn't have to think about it, you know, because my biggest fear was how am I ever going to go to a wedding again and not drink? How am I ever going to have a birthday party and not drink? And all of those decisions were removed. And that really helped me at the time. And so I often say to people now who are in early recovery, you know, for that first six to 12 months, it's, it's best to avoid those places where you would have drunk, where you would have been a heavy user, just while you're building enough support around yourself to not fall back into those triggers because the cravings will come, but it's how you manage them so that you can start to rewire those neural pathways time and time again, and eventually the cravings stop. And then you get to live that yeah, piece. I Yeah, I agree. Um, I use like a kind of a traffic light um, metaphor that um, mm. there are some things actually that you can't avoid. You can't avoid everything, right? So green, you know, is you're going through the week and, and you think, do you know what? All I've got to do is get, as you said, which is wonderful, put your head on the pillow sober And once you do that, you can tick it off as another day. But, you know, if something's amber or red, it's flagging up, then you have to weigh up your options. And that could be, do I feel okay going to this? Um, If so, I can drive, I can leave early, you know, the old French exit and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And planning is everything. And, you know, it's... We can go on to talk now about all the people listening to this. This is uh, at the beginning of dry January, and there are a lot of people nowadays doing it. It's not a trend. It's not a fad. It's an opportunity for people to look at their relationship with alcohol. And and as you know, um, taking a month off booze can actually reset your mindset to Mm. then look at it at the end of it and go, what do I want to do with this now, you know? Um, mm. And I think planning is everything. It's not winging it every single day where you think, oh, I'm on day five, day six. That's all right. You need to set boundaries. You need to plan ahead, you know. So what tips can you give to the listeners now of how to get through the first few days? Oh, okay, absolutely. You know, one of the most amazing parts about getting sober and whether you're doing that for 30 days, three months, six months or an eternity is this opportunity for you to reconnect with self. When you remove spirits, the spirit, you get to reconnect to your own spirit. And so the number one thing that I have done from the day that I got sober is I meditate and I pray. Now, prayer may not be for everyone, But let me go back to the meditation for a moment. I always talk about them together because in my personal practice, I do them together. But meditation doesn't have to be sitting in a lotus position on a cushion for 20 minutes in complete silence. It simply doesn't. If you want to start meditating, but you don't know how, it might be that you just start to practice mindfulness. And that could simply be that when you step into the shower in the morning, you pay attention to the sensation of every single bead of water as it runs down your skin. And you really start to tune in. And the more that you can start to tune in and quiet the mind, then you can start to connect to this inner knowing. And I have found that over time, this relationship with self, the longer I've stayed sober and the more that I've meditated, 
that relationship with self has started to blossom and I've actually started to live in alignment with the person that I'm meant to be rather than the person I thought I was going to be or that I needed to be. You know, Dave, I'll tell you something. I'm turning 35 this Christmas day and I don't have any of the things on paper that I thought I needed at this age to be okay. I don't have a husband. I don't own a home. I don't have children. And if you had told me that at 21, like I probably would have ended it there because I I just couldn't have imagined or fathomed how I could possibly be happy. And yet I can hand on heart tell you that I am the happiest woman I have ever been in my life. And it's not only from being sober, that is absolutely the number one reason, but it's all of these gifts that have come from being sober. And that number one is absolutely that connection to self, being Mm. able to live authentically. And then the different people that come into your life as a result of that is incredible. But meditation is an absolute starting point. So if that's something that feels really scary for you, like I said, you can just try practicing a couple of minutes in the shower. Mm. There's some brilliant apps. I still use the apps. You know, I've done a Vedic meditation course and I do do silent meditation as well. But sometimes my head is all over the shop, actually more often than not. And so when I sit down to meditate, I find that a guided meditation can be really, really helpful. But just learning to create that time for yourself to come into self over time, the benefits just get greater and greater. I I so hear you um, um, because I went to a retreat. I was three weeks sober and we was in this circle and there was the main guy there who looked like he'd been meditating for 80 years. He was in (laughs) that position, right? And I sat around and I opened one eye because I couldn't connect with myself and everyone was lost, you know, and I thought, I just can't do meditation, right? Mm. But you're so right. It's what that means to us is what does that mean? And it could be sitting in your chair with your feet firmly on the ground. Yes. Peace and quiet and just having a couple of minutes of mindfulness to connect with yourself Um And let's face it, with alcohol, we use that to turn the noise down. But with Mm. grounding, centering, meditating, breath work, you can use that to turn the volume down as well. And what I love as well about what you said is the mask that we've worn all our lives to people, please, right? When you take that mask off and you're there with yourself, your inner child, you know, the vulnerable child that was using alcohol as a coping mechanism to get through life. Mm. We owe it to ourselves to give some love back, you know, and, and you can only do that by taking that toxic drug out, right? Uh, mm. and, and that's what I found with myself. It's like using things to quieten the noise down, uh, in an authentic way. And I never thought I would ever say things like that, you know. Because I've bundled my way through life. I come from Croydon, as everyone knows, and I sound like a market boy. (laughs) But, you know, I'm 58, covered in toes, head to foot and that. But when you described that then, I actually had goosebumps because I totally got you when you said Mm -hmm. about connecting with your true self because that is what has kept me sober. Thank you for sharing that. Honestly, that was powerful. And there are going to be people here that are going to be thinking, okay, so um, how do I get through tonight without drinking? And I quite often say about 
uh, opening hours where you might have a particular time that you you start drinking, be it five, six o'clock in the evening, you might have finished work and you're driving home and you get that dopamine hit of, I can have a drink soon. And immediately you feel happy. It's a reward, good day, bad day, any day. And then you might nip in the shop and buy the wine and then go home. The first thing you do is open the wine, pour a big glass, gollop it down. And you then you say, ah, oh, yeah. And then when you remove that, it's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And, and and one of the biggest things I say is don't be a victim because this mm. is all good. Like all what you're doing now is all good for your physical and mental health. You know, give yourself the opportunity to have a month off. But to fill that void, you need to plan. Right. You need to make plans. So you, you need to organize, revisit your hobbies. Um, and I quite often say, do you know what? It's okay. Whether you're single married or whatnot to, to have a shower and go to bed. Because if, if you never drank in bed, that's like a <laughs> safety place for you, you know, and you can yeah. still watch your Netflix or your box sets or you can still listen to mindful podcasts um, or, you know, you can do whatever you like, but just remove yourself from the association of your daily habits. Do you agree with that? I completely agree with that. I think it's really important to, we remove alcohol, but you do need to replace it with other things. To an extent, and I'll come back to why it's also good to learn how to sit with self in a moment. But in those very early days where you feel like there are ants crawling all over your skin and you just want to be able to peel your skin off to get out of your body, that's what I felt like in early recovery. Have things that you can do. And I love what you said about planning because if you don't have a plan in place, then the voice which has told you that one drink won't hurt or one drink doesn't matter, this time it'll be different. I can tell you right now that voice is powerful and that voice is strong. You need to have a defense against that voice. So that's the reason why 12-step fellowships are so popular because you can get up and you can go to a meeting. If that's not your jam, call people and organize to go for a walk, go to the gym. You know, I went and retrained and became a yoga teacher in my second year of sobriety. All of these things that you, and again, You'll start to discover all of these things about yourself that you didn't even know you liked. Maybe you'll become an incredible chef or pastry chef or cook or who knows. There's all these different things. Like you said, you can revisit your hobbies. But, you know, just physical exercise is one thing that by moving your body, not only are you removing yourself from the temptation to want to drink, but then you're also getting those endorphins and that dopamine hit from a natural source. You know, of course, you can over-exercise as well. We can do anything to extremes, but it's a healthier way of Mm. getting that same feeling. So I think, yeah, number one, move your body. Number two, connect to other people. And if you're not going to 12-step meetings, then organize to go for a walk with someone, pick up the phone and go for a call. Reach out to people on Instagram that you know are sober. Yeah. Yeah. And also, do you know what is really powerful? Sharing your journey and, and your, you know, reach out to a best friend and say, look, mm. do you want to do it with me? Let's see how we feel at the end of it. And then we can go from there. You know, sharing that experience is powerful. And, you know, like I spent so many decades looking at the floor. Uh, and when you stop drinking, it frees all that volume in your head of shall I, shan't I? 
You know, mm. if you make it non-negotiable, you say, look, I am not drinking for the whole of this month, right? Then all of a sudden, you've got all this freedom in your mind where you're not overthinking about two o'clock, oh, shall I, shan't I, whatever, right? Mm. So as I said initially, don't be a victim, embrace mm. it. Take that control back from that inner voice, which mm. is the devil on the shoulder going, mm. come on, you're right. There's nothing wrong with you. You haven't got a problem. You know, it's rubbish because you wouldn't be doing it in the first place. Right. So you do you have to knock it off your shoulder and you go, look, I am bored of your voice. You are really grating <laughs> on me now. I'm going to do this whether you like it or not, you know, mm. and take back that control. And, it's so, so powerful to do that because, to be honest, most of the time we feel like they, the voice has control of our entire life. It dominates you from the minute you wake up, oh, I'm not drinking ever again, to going through the hangover, to then starting to feel better after lunch, to then, oh, I might just have one tonight to buying two bottles of wine and drinking them and then going round and round and round again. And the craziness of that is we tell ourselves that we must have just changed our mind, but it's not. We were, It was always going to end up that way. If you're an alcoholic, you will always drink again unless you find a program of recovery, unless you choose to be sober and you really commit to that. You know, I can guarantee you, and for anybody listening at the moment, going into dry January, and you're thinking, how am I going to get through 30 days? Let me say this to you. If you end up drinking within the 30 days, I can guarantee you how it's going to end up. And it's going to be like every other time you've ever drunk. If you get through the 30 days, you're opening yourself up to a new experience that you may have never had before. And the opportunities are endless when you choose sobriety. So just give it a shot. You've got nothing to lose. 100%. And it's important to say as well that if you do drink in those 30 days, Mm. reset, reset and start again, right? It's not over and done with and you're not a failure. It's just a slip, right? And you can learn from that experience to think, okay, why did I drink? How Mm. can I avoid that next time? What can I put in place to avoid that? I'm going to start again tomorrow, right? Because it's not a race. It's not, oh, well, you haven't done the whole 31 days, uh, and, and you're a failure and you're never going to be able to do it. Learn by that experience and start the next day. Exactly right. And, you know, just going back to when I was talking about putting the different plans in place like we were discussing, the other thing that I'll share is that if you have drunk for a number of years, then you will be programmed to want to drink on any sort of feeling, whether that be boredom, discomfort, pain, grief, happiness, Generally, we get a feeling and then we drink on it or we do something else to to numb that feeling. What you'll start to do in this sobriety journey is learn how to sit with those emotions and that's where we start to develop emotional sobriety. And it's not easy, I promise you, but it is so worthwhile and it does get easier. It's like anything. You just need to practice these things and know that a feeling will not kill you. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads me on to your wonderful podcast, Behind the Smile, because you've just recorded one with Jill from Sober Powered on Emotional Sobriety, haven't you? I did, yeah. 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 It's such a strong subject, actually, because I, I also call that the second phase where, where you, you're doing the practicals of stopping drinking, and that can take 
a while, but then afterwards you've got all the stuff that you've been running away from, from your whole life and the emotional sobriety and also the feeling of not knowing who you are. You know, you've shed that skin. Um, mm. You've hung up that actor's coat of how you've shapeshifted all your life to fit in, to feel accepted. And all of a sudden you're you and you think, oh, I've got all these feelings coming up and I'm not sure what to do next. And emotional sobriety is such a fascinating subject. And, you know, you're, you're coming up to three years of sobriety and um, that is fantastic. Your story is incredible and I'm so grateful. We've got so much in common, you know, as well. Uh, I do <laughs> feel amazing. like I've known you for years. And the yeah, other thing likewise. is as well, like when this, this podcast comes out, I'm on yours <laughs> about <Yeah>. four or five <laughs> days after this. So that's, that's brilliant as well. It's perfect timing. It is. Um, so thank you so much for joining me and sharing your incredibly powerful story. You should feel so proud of yourself, Ash. Honestly, you've done so much in your life and to be 35 at Christmas. Happy birthday, by the way. Um, Thank you. It's um, incredible how you've turned your life out and you're a real ambassador for sobriety because anyone listening to this would be, wow, what a woman. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's been an absolute honour to join you on your podcast and I am such a big fan of everything you do within the sober space. So thank you for having me. Bless you. All right, have a wonderful year and no doubt we'll speak soon. Look forward to it. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road. It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.